right, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, um, open it up to the book of Acts. Uh, I promise we're starting Galatians this morning, but to give you context, I'll just have you go ahead and turn to the book of Acts so you know where we're headed. Uh, If you want to go ahead and find Galatians, you can as well. Uh, We're just going to cover the first five verses of Galatians chapter one this morning, and we'll read those in just a second. So you kind of need to be in both places. So um, use your bookmarks or whatever you got, and uh, we're going to read Galatians in a minute, but uh, we'll start kind of looking at the book of Acts to set the setting for this book and all of those things. But as you turn there, as you find both of those, uh, let me let you know about a couple things. Um, we had Element this weekend. You saw the video. I just wanted to say thanks. I know Chris thanked you, but I wanted to thank you as well for those of you that gave, for those of you that served, um, for those of you that showed up and helped. Um, if that was you, uh, I know you don't like being put on the spot, but will you stand up for a second just so we can thank you? If you gave up some time for the weekend and served, uh, let a small group, Ellie, Robin, Ethan, go ahead, stand up. If there's any other, yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yeah, that's a big thank you to all of you. It means the world to us. Um, thank you all so much. And uh, um, if you gave, I know we don't want to put you on the spot. You don't have to stand. We thank you for that. Um, Seriously, it means the world that you would allow um, teenagers to be a part of a weekend like that, to hear the gospel, to be around um, solid Christian community and grow in their faith and all of those things. It means the world. Um, I got to lead a group of eighth grade boys for the last three days, so it's been a fun time. And uh, they're a great group of guys um, that I get to spend Wednesday nights with up here at Crew. And I also wanted to say thanks to uh, Chris. Uh, part of um, the beauty of just what God has done over the past couple years Um, and just moving people around and sending people and um, sending people out and just all of that he's orchestrated is that the Lord brought Chris um, to our church. And um, when I, this isn't flattery, Um, we have probably one of the greatest youth pastors around in Chris. Um, Put that man in a group, uh, in a room with no materials, no supplies and teenage human beings and he thrives. Um, can just think of things to do, can think of activities, can think of games, and all of those things. And uh, not just his skills, um, but the man, his heart behind all of those things that he does for teenagers. Um, He loves your students and loves for them to know the gospel. And we'll fight for them, we'll labor for them, we'll pray for them, we'll weep with them, and uh, has done all of those things in just the short time that he's been here. So uh, we are really blessed, and um, we're excited that he's going to be teaching some of these sections of Galatians, which is going to be great, and I can't wait for him to lead us in some of those things too. Um, So that was Element. Another thing I want to make mention of is... um, We had our family dinner a couple weeks ago. Uh, We're actually going to change the plan for February and try something a little different. Uh, They're not going away. I know uh, it's a kind of a thing that we love around here. But for February, uh, gentlemen, we're a couple weeks out from Valentine's Day. I just want to give you that warning. Uh, We're about, not even a couple weeks, we're about uh, nine days out from Valentine's Day. Um, So feel free to try to make reservations and all those things um, on the 14th or... Um, one of the things that we've decided to do as a staff is uh, we want to start doing some kind of quarterly church-wide date nights. And all that means is that we are going to open up the children's ministry and give our parents in the room a couple hours 
on a night every quarter or so for you to go and invest in your marriage. And you can do that um, on your own as a couple. You can pair up with other couples in the church. Uh, you can be single in the church and find a date for that night if you want to. Um, however you want to handle this. Um, but our staff and our elders and their wives are actually going to take the first night. Uh, February the 19th, uh, we're going to have our first kind of High Point Carnival church-wide date night. Um, where if you have a child that's infant through fifth grade, you can bring them up here um, for a couple hours. All the times are online. Um, I would tell you those, but I've forgotten them, but they're online. And I'm telling you that because you have to register for one of these things. I know registrations for other events at High Point or Mission Church are kind of just suggestions at this point. Um, This is one where registration is required. Um, If you want to bring your child, um, you have to register that they will be here for that night. And it's February the 19th. It's a Sunday evening. There's no school for public schools uh, the next day on the 20th for some random holiday. I'm not sure which one it is at this point. Um, But the 19th, you can register, sign up, and we would love um, to let you have a couple hours to invest in your marriage. Um, if babysitters are hard to find and all of those things, let this be a night where we can um, have fun with your children and care for them and have a blast with them and um, minister to them, but you can um, invest in your marriage. Uh, we've decided as a staff um, you know, I don't want to speak in absolutes, um, but based on just our demographics at this campus, um, if there was an area that the enemy would target um, to try to, to attack this group of believers, it would be our marriages. Um, it just would, based on the demographics here at our, at our church. And that's not to discredit you or discount you or not include you if you're single, um, but the majority of our congregation um, is married, and we want to provide a time at least quarterly, where you can intentionally invest in your marriage. So that's the 19th. All the details are online. Please register. Um, If you have a student that is approved to volunteer and they want to show up and help us volunteer with the children, they are welcome to come. Um, But this is for the children. Um, So teenagers, can uh, you can do whatever you do with your teenagers when you guys go and run errands and do things. So um, but we love if they're approved and they want to help, they're welcome to help. So um, let's read this and dive in. We got to get moving. Uh, I'm going to read Galatians chapter one, uh, verses one through five and pray for us. And then we will jump in together. Um, so if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, uh, we'll read this introduction to the book of Galatians. And uh, we'll talk about these first couple of verses uh, to kick off this study. Um, so it says this, Galatians chapter one, starting in verse one. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. God, as we read that introduction, God, it is so much more than just an introduction to a letter. And God, I pray that you help us to see that this morning. God, that we would see that from eternity past, God, the will of the Trinity, the will of the Father, Son, and Spirit um, would be for Jesus Christ to die and to give himself up for our sins. God, that it is won by Jesus, it is because of Jesus, it is for the glory of Jesus alone, and no other. So Father, we give you all the glory this morning, 
um, for what you've done in our lives, for what you've done on the cross, for what you've done in the spiritual realm. And uh, God, we ask that you would meet us here. Um, God, teach us by your word. God, we are sheep um, and we have a good shepherd and it's not me. God, it's you. So lead us by your voice, lead us by your word, conform us to the image of your son, guide us, protect us, and God, I pray that as under shepherds um, here over this flock, um, God, that we would be gentle and kind when needed, but like Paul in this letter, God, that we would be shrewd when the gospel is being attacked, and uh, God, that we would be faithful protectors of the gospel over this body. Um, So God, help us to see that and... um, God, rejoice in that this morning. Um, Thank you for your word. God, how good and sweet it is to the soul. God, allow it to be like water, as Proverbs says, to the thirsty soul. Um, Move this morning, God. We invite your spirit to fall and uh, fall on our hearts. And God, work through um, the proclamation of your word. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so let me tell you a couple things about the book of Galatians as we dive into it. Um, the book of Galatians is actually the first epistle. The first the epistle just means letter um, that the Apostle Paul wrote. Um, it's one of the earliest letters of the New Testament that we have. The only one that rivals it is the book of James, um, which happened very soon after Jesus left the earth. Um, Jesus' brother, James, wrote this letter to the churches, and we'll see kind of who he's writing to in just a minute um, as we kind of um, skip over the book of Acts and skip through it and let you see kind of the setting. Um, you might not know this, but the book of Acts is essentially the timeline of the New Testament where all these letters were written, all these churches were planted, is you can read all about all of those events happening in the book of Acts. If you want to read about the Philippian church being born, you can go to Acts chapter 16. If you want to read about the Galatian church being born and created through the preaching of the gospel and people coming to repent and put their faith in Jesus, we're going to look at it in just a second in Acts chapter 13 and 14. But the timeline of the New Testament is the book of Acts. You see Jesus rise from the dead. You see Jesus spend 40 days with his disciples at the end of the Gospels. And the book of Acts opens with the risen Jesus commissioning his followers. And he tells them, gives them instructions to wait in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. He's going to ascend. The helper's coming that he had been talking about all throughout the Gospels. He is coming. It's time for the helper to come. The disciples are going, what's going to happen with your kingdom? You've been preaching and talking about this kingdom. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. Is it time for that kingdom to to show up and to be built? And Jesus says, yes, but not the way that you think it's gonna be built. The disciples, much like we probably would have in those moments, were still thinking about a physical kingdom for a political leader, just like all of the kingdoms before Jesus with Alexander the Great in Greece and Julius Caesar in Rome, all of these leaders who they thought their Messiah would be like showed up and ruled with power and with dominance and with authority and physically established their own kingdoms by overthrowing the kingdom before them. And the disciples are looking at Jesus going, you've risen from the dead. Like we know that you could just overthrow Rome really fast and set up the kingdom of Israel. Is it time for you to do that? And Jesus says, yes, it's time to set up the kingdom, but it's not gonna be the way that you think. And although Jesus had all the power, all the authority, all of the might to do those very things, he was not setting up a physical kingdom. Now he will one day. When he returns, it's in power and in might and in authority to defeat Satan 
forever and to establish a physical kingdom, to judge all people for all time according to the, the blood of the lamb, if they're covered by the blood of the lamb over their sins, or if they're going to give an account of their own life before God and try to vouch for their own behavior and their own works. But he will come one day in power and might and set up a physical kingdom. But that day was not Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, Jesus looks at his disciples who are saying, are you setting up your kingdom now? And Jesus says, yes, but it's not gonna be the kind of kingdom you think. And in fact, I'm gonna set it up through you. You're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I'm not setting up a physical kingdom. I'm setting up a spiritual kingdom. And my kingdom's not coming through power and overthrowing governments and all of those things. My kingdom is coming, although I have all the power, it's coming through love and humility and self-sacrifice. I'm setting up a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom on earth, but a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men. That's what I came to do. And it is to those children who see me as Lord and as Savior in their hearts, those will be the ones who I set up the physical kingdom for when I return. But I am sending this gospel message out to the world, and I am building a physical or a spiritual kingdom of God through the preaching and teaching and display of the gospel to the earth. And those who have eyes to see it and ears to hear it will believe and repent and they will declare Jesus Christ as Lord in their hearts. It will show up in their lives. And those will be the ones who experience the physical kingdom when he returns. But that's the setting of the book of Acts is the apostles going out and preaching the gospel. And the method of preaching the gospel was to go and preach. We'll see Paul's method in just a minute. Plant churches, establish elders and leaders and pastors and head on to other places that had not heard the gospel before. And you watch all of these churches that we read about in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Philippi, you get to see the timeline of those churches being planted in the book of Acts. That it literally starts in Jerusalem, goes to Judea, goes to Samaria, and by the end of the book of Acts, we have seen the gospel go to the ends of the known world at that time. And you get to watch this on display. So the apostles are going out, and the book of Galatians was one of the first missionary journeys of Paul. In fact, the book of Galatians is planted in Paul's first missionary journey. In Paul's life, he goes on three different missionary journeys. Um, in the first one, he plants churches in the region of Galatia. Galatia is different than the other places that we read about like Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica, um, Colossae, because all of those were individual cities. Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a region of multiple cities. You'll actually see it, uh, we read it. He says, to the churches of Galatia. So it's actually a bunch of different churches in this one big region. Not like Philippi, where there was one church in Philippi. He says, hey, to all the churches in this region of Galatia. And we'll see that in just a minute. But Paul plants his church, or all of these churches, with Barnabas on their first missionary journey um, to Asia Minor, and we'll see that in just a second. But the book of Galatians is um, what has often been known as um, the Magna Carta of Christian freedom. Um, this book is all about freedom. Freedom from the Old Testament law, freedom from the power of sin in our lives, freedom from the penalty of sin in our lives that we're justified before God in Christ. 
If you don't know what the word justified means, it just, it's, it's a judicial term. It just means to be declared righteous, that the judge has looked at me and he has said that I am righteous, that I am declared right and good and pure and holy. That's what to be justified means. This is what we have in Christ. When our sins are put on Jesus and his righteousness is put on us, God the judge looks down on us and declares us righteous, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Jesus did in our place, that we are justified, that we are set free from the penalty of our sin. We are no longer guilty of those sins because he put them on his son and his son paid the punishment for our sins on the cross, shed his blood for those sins. So we're gonna see, there's about 20 different times the word bondage or freedom shows up in the book of Galatians. It is all about Christian freedom. Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You've probably heard that verse before. But it is all about being set free from the burden of the Old Testament law, from the penalty of the law, from the power of sin in our lives, from the penalty of sin in our lives. We are free in Christ. And it has set people free since it was written. It has set churches free since it, was, it is written. This book has been used to set believers free, to set movements free, to set the church free, as we'll see in just a second. Um, this was actually the book that started the Protestant Reformation, was the book of Galatians. Martin Luther was a monk in the 1500s and was following the Roman Catholic Church and all that it had added to the gospel. All of the works that it had added, essentially, um, to put your faith in Jesus, you were not just saved by God's free gift of grace, but it was grace plus your own merit, plus your own ability to, to earn it. And it wasn't just faith, it was faith plus your good works. It was penance and confession and almsgiving and um, the doctrine of purgatory was invented where believers would die and they would go to this place where you would have to work off the rest of your sins as if you and I could work off our sins. We could, we could exist long enough where we could finally work off the sins that we've committed to an infinitely holy God, that you would go there and you would work off those sins and then you would eventually get to heaven. And if your loved ones didn't make it to purgatory, if they um, weren't even that, quote, good to make it there, that you could give alms, you who are still living, you could give alms to the church and that would save your loved ones who did not believe in Jesus when they were alive. You could just give money to the church and they would be saved. All of these different things were created and it wasn't just according to scripture alone, it was according to scripture and tradition and not just for the glory of God alone, but for the glory of God and the Pope and the priests and the saints that have gone before us. This is the world that Martin Luther lived in and many of you might know Martin Luther's story. He thought this is how he had to be saved through regularly keeping up with faith in Christ plus all of the good works that there was some steps in Rome that were um, supposedly brought over from Jerusalem where um, to, to gain good works, you could crawl up these steps and kiss every step because it was believed that it was the very steps that Jesus walked when he was on earth. And you had to crawl on your hands and knees up these steps and kiss every step and that would be good works that would merit more um, grace towards you and get you closer to, to earning your salvation. And then you had to regularly confess to the point where Martin Luther took that seriously. Martin Luther was someone who understood his sin tremendously. And he would start confessing. And for six and seven hours at a time, he would confess his sins, right? Not just deeds that he had done, but every attitude, every thought, 
and six hours at a time to the point where his priest said, stop coming. Don't come back unless you've committed adultery or done something really bad. Essentially, they looked at him and said, don't start confessing unless you have something worth confessing, which means hide all of the little attitudes and sins and just come and confess the big stuff. And Martin Luther starts to look around and go, what are we doing? And it wasn't until he read the book of Galatians that you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone because of God's grace alone and what Jesus has done alone according to scripture alone for the glory of God alone that set him free and allowed him to nail the 95 theses on the, the front door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. It says, we're not doing this anymore. Here's what scripture says for all the people to believe. And it started the Protestant Reformation where now we believed that we're not saved by grace plus merit or faith plus work. We are saved by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone, according to this scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. That's the goodness of this book. It has set Christians free for generations. And the reason that we're studying it is I pray that that freedom doesn't just stop there, but it happens in this room. Our prayer is that it sets some of you free from this idea that you have to be a good person in order for God to love you, or that you have to earn God's grace with your works, or that you have to do enough or be good enough for God um, to forgive you of your sins. That's not gospel. Some of you are like, wait, that's not what we believe? I thought we believed that you put your faith in Jesus and you do some good stuff and you do good works and then God will save you. Um, hopefully, some of you have heard, or heard the nuance in that statement. We do not believe here at this church that you put your faith in Jesus and then you do, do good works so that God will save you. The good news of the gospel is you put your faith in Jesus and God saves you. And when God saves you, knowing that you've done no good works, when a God like that, holy and perfect and righteous, would save me, who has done no good works on his behalf, who cannot be good enough to please him or ever do enough good things to win my own salvation, who I'm dead in my sin, I'm a rebel against God, I'm hostile to the gospel message in my sin, a God who would run after a rebel like me and shed his own blood for me, when he saves me by faith alone, no good works required, a God like that who would save me is worthy of my life. I don't do the good works so that he might save me. He saves me freely by his grace. It's a free gift, no works required. And a God who would be that good to me, I want to do good works for him. The works don't save me. It's the works that are a result of my saving. A God who would be that generous and that gracious and that merciful and that compassionate to a broken sinner like me who could do nothing to ever be good enough to win his approval, to win his love and his grace, if he would die for me, then I will live for him. I'll put my life on the altar. This is what our students learned this weekend, Romans, 1, Romans 12, one and two, that we would offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, that we don't have to die. Why? Because he died in our place. So now that I live in such a way that I'm on the altar, he took the death. So now my life is at his disposal. And I'll do whatever he asked me to do. The works show and they're a result of my salvation, but they don't save me. Your goodness, your good deeds, if you wanna call them that, don't do anything to get you closer to God. They don't. 
They are a result, if you are in Christ, of what God has done in you. They are the fruit of your salvation, not the root of it. Does that make sense? It's the faith alone, in Christ alone, that saves. We get no glory in our salvation. The beautiful thing about heaven is there won't be a single boast of anyone talking about themselves and boasting in themselves. Not a single moment for all of eternity will a single person boast about themselves. Why? Because the cry of heaven will be boasting in what Christ has done. No one has gotten there based on their own merit. Everyone who will be there, the only reason they will be there is the shed blood of Christ. That's what got me here. No one will be showing up in heaven and speaking in the first person. Hey, how did you get here? Because I did this and because I obeyed and because I was good. No, it's because he, because he is good, because he is gracious, because he loved me, because he gave himself for me, because he shed his blood for me. That's the only boast I have. Otherwise, I don't make it. It's what he has done. That's our hope for this study, is that Christ continues to set people free. And many in this room would be set free as we see the goodness of the gospel in the book of Galatians. Um, Galatians is often called a mini Romans because Romans is the extensive version that would be written later of Galatians. Paul is angry, as we'll see as we look through this letter. Um, the, the hearers, the audience of this letter had quickly turned back to a version of the gospel that was faith plus works. And Paul starts, um, just to, to kind of get ahead for a second, Paul, um, usually in his greetings, he gives a greeting and then he moves into this time of thanksgiving where, you know, in Philippians, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in all of my prayers. I'm thankful for you. I long for you with the affection of Jesus. Paul throws all that out in this letter. He gives the introduction, which really isn't an introduction, as we'll see today. And he doesn't do any thanksgiving, and he moves into the fact <coughs> that he says in verse six, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. At one point in the letter, he's gonna say, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That they had been preyed on, and they had fallen back to this gospel this religion that was faith in Christ plus good works. They had been preyed on and they had bought into this ideology and they were trying to practice these good works and the good work they were practicing was circumcision to try to win favor with God, to do these works to be saved by God. And Paul says, you've turned to a different gospel. And as we'll see next week, faith plus anything else equals nothing. Faith in Christ plus any works for salvation is no gospel whatsoever. You don't have the gospel if you've added works to it. You no longer have the gospel. You have something completely against the gospel when it's up to you and your own works and your own merit and your own behavior. So this is why this book is incredibly important. It's Paul's first letter. Um, we get the gospel in plain terms. And then if you want to double click on a lot of these things, you turn to the book of Romans where Paul gives us 16 chapters of gospel from beginning to end. What God has done from eternity past to eternity future, our relationship to the law, all of those kind of things. We're gonna get some of that in this section. And often as we go through it, we might reference the book of Romans so that you can see some of these arguments fleshed out a little more because Paul would write it later and it would be a little more in-depth and extensive. 
Um, but this is a great, great letter. It is the Magna Carta that we're going to look at of Christian independence from the law, from sin, from the power of sin in our lives. So I'm really excited to look at it with you. Um, to give you some of the context, if you're in the book of Acts, if you'll turn there for just a second, um, we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to kind of skip through it. Um, I've essentially already summarized Acts chapter one, um, where Jesus looks at his apostles and tells them that they're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on them. Um, if you want to kind of skip through it for a second, I want to show you how the church is being born and how the gospel is going forth. Um, Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit falls just as Jesus said, and Peter breaks out into a sermon. First sermon, the day the Spirit fell, 40 days after Jesus ascended. <clears throat> the Spirit falls, Peter gives this sermon, and thousands of people start believing in Jesus, start repenting, putting their faith in Jesus. And at the end of Acts chapter two, you see the church being born. <clears throat> One of our favorite passages of scripture at this church, where you see the believers devote themselves to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, all of these things, and they are giving to one another, they're taking care of one another, they're committing to one another, they're selling their possessions to meet each other's needs, they're breaking bread, praising God, all of those things. In Acts 3, you see Peter heal this lame man um, at the temple gate called Beautiful. Um, you see Peter break out into another sermon. Um, because of this sermon, Peter gets arrested and brought before the council, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 4. Um, Peter stands his ground. Students, like we talked about this weekend in Daniel, Peter's before the council telling him that you can't preach about this Jesus. And Peter says, I'm sorry, I'm preaching about this Jesus. I'm listening to God, not to men. And looks these leaders in the face and says, do what you want, but I'm preaching Jesus. And they essentially, um, if you look at verse 13 of Acts chapter four, it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They saw their boldness and said, these people have been with Jesus. They're not afraid of us. They have a boldness that comes from God. And they end up letting them go. They you know, kind of whisper like, hey, don't preach this stuff. And what do they do? They start preaching anyways. Um, because they get let go, they pray for boldness. They start preaching. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, that's a whole nother topic in Acts chapter five. But all of the believers are selling their possessions and Ananias and Sapphira um, deceive the church and lie about their um, selling and all of those kind of things. And they're um, rightly punished for that. And then Acts chapter six, you see the deacons are born, not physically born, but essentially um, the church is together, they're gathering, and you've got the apostles and the elders and the pastors, and they're like, hey, we're trying to pray and preach and deliver the word of God, but we've got all these physical needs, so let's raise up these men in the church who can address some of the physical needs in the body. So they raise up these deacons. And then in Acts chapter seven, Stephen, the first Christian to be killed, that's recorded in the New Testament. Apart from Jesus, his name is Stephen. And you can read about all of this in Acts chapter seven. But Stephen is brought before the council. They ask him to give an account of why he is doing what he's doing and following Jesus. And he lays out the gospel. We won't read it. But Stephen gives them the gospel from Abraham all the way to them killing Jesus. <clears throat> he gives them the gospel 
They end up stoning him. And if you look at Acts chapter seven, if you look at verse 58, um, it says, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So we see a man named Saul who's holding the garments of these Jewish leaders who are stoning this Christian. And Saul's there, he's holding their garments. Stephen, uh, as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Very akin to Jesus' death. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That this Christian is facing the the judgment of man with boldness. Why? Because he knows that he is clear of the judgment of God. That he is right with God. So he can face anything that man might bring to him. And he dies with joy, knowing that he's going to be with Jesus. In verse eight, if you flip the, the chapter, the next chapter, what does it say? And Saul approved of his execution. And then arose on that day a great per- persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here's what happens. Stephen is killed, and the church scatters. By this time, you've got around five, 6,000 believers in Jerusalem, all gathering together, hearing the apostles' teaching, breaking bread together. <clears throat> A Christian dies, and they all scatter. All across Turkey, Asia Minor, Europe, <clears throat> they're gone. And what the enemy meant for evil, Genesis 50, 20, God meant for good. And Stephen is killed, believers scatter. And then what do we see? All throughout Asia Minor, these believers just start, churches just start popping up everywhere because all the believers scattered and they just started preaching the gospel wherever they ended up. And the the letter of James is actually written to all of these churches, as he says in James chapter one, in the dispersion. All these church, all these believers that were in Jerusalem and took off, James writes the letter of James to them. They're supposed to see it and read it and take it in and consume it and live by it. He writes this letter to them. Uh, I was telling our foundations class this morning, it's almost like one, I've never seen this in real life, but one of those kind of horror videos where you kill a spider and then like all the babies go running out everywhere. That's what I think of when I read Acts chapter seven and Acts chapter eight is the enemy meant this for evil, killing this Christian. And because of that, the church just scatters all across the known world and the gospel goes forth. And what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good, for the gospel to be preached all throughout Asia Minor. So you see Saul there holding their clothes, Saul approving of this death. And in Acts chapter nine, God's going to do something with Saul. And if you look at Acts chapter nine, God shows up to Saul and it says this. I'll just read a section of it to you. It says, but Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Saul's not a nice dude. He is killing Christians. He is removing them from their homes. He is threatening them. He is murdering them. He happily approved of Stephen's death. He was a Pharisee, as he tells us in Philippians chapter three. He says he was a Hebrew, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, he was a Pharisee, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Like Paul gets to the point where he bragged about how much he was persecuting the church. And we see Paul, he was adamantly against this Christian movement until Acts chapter nine. He's breathing these threats against the disciples and he goes to the high priest and they asked him for letters 
to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was Christianity. It was called the way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And those who follow Jesus, they were these followers of the way. And he says, um, if he finds any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? So instantly, he knows that this voice that essentially caused him to fall on the ground, he knows it's from God. He doesn't know who this God is. He might be thinking it's Yahweh at this point. He grew up Jewish, that there's this voice from heaven. He can't see anything, cries out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? And the response is, and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. So see what's going on here. Jesus shows up to Paul and says, hey, you're persecuting me. This way that you're trying to to stomp is mine. I am God. I am the one you're persecuting. He blinds him and he tells him to go to Jerusalem. And there's gonna be a man named Ananias who's gonna come and lay hands on you. And meanwhile, there's a message sent to Ananias saying, hey, go to Jerusalem, go to this street called Straight, go to this house of Judas, and you're gonna find Saul of Tarsus praying. And Ananias is going, whoa, 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 whoa. I've heard about this guy. I I doubt he's gonna be praying, right? He's actually looking for people who are praying and he's trying to kill them. And what happens? Ananias is confused. He's like, I've heard about this guy. He's killing Christians. In verse 14, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Do not miss that verse. Jesus says Paul is a, or Saul at the time, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles. This is going to be one of the crucial issues of the book of Galatians because they aren't just attacking the gospel that Paul brings, those in Galatia who are attacking the gospel. They end up attacking Paul and his credibility. Say, hey, he's not an apostle. His authority doesn't come from God. He's named himself an apostle or he's found some friends who are calling him an apostle. He's not an apostle. He doesn't have the authority to say this. In fact, he's changing the gospel. You have to go back to the original gospel, which is faith plus circumcision plus the Jewish law plus all of the feasts and the dietary restrictions. You gotta do all of those things. 
Don't listen to Paul. He's changing the message. He's making it easy and palatable for the Gentiles. And he's doing that because he's not a real apostle. So the book of Galatians is Paul not just defending the gospel, but he's defending himself. And I wanted to take you to Acts 9 so that you can see Jesus himself say, Paul is my, or Saul is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles. Because Paul is going to reference that multiple times in this letter. And then notice this, he's my chosen instrument to carry my name. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to say to you, he has sent me so that you may regain your sight to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And from that point on, Saul, who calls himself Paul, is just his Greek name. Um, Many people think Jesus changed Saul's name. It's actually Paul. They just decided to go by his Greek name. Why? Because he was taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to those who did not grow up um, Jews. Saul was his Jewish name. And he said, "I'm I'm gonna be all things to all people and just started referring to himself as his Greek name, which was Paul, so that I can preach and carry the name to the Gentiles. And immediately, Paul goes off and starts preaching and teaching and planting churches, going on missionary journeys. He is just as zealous as he was to crush the gospel. After he meets Jesus, he is that much zealous to spread the gospel. The same passion he had to end the movement was the same passion that he carried with him to spread the movement. And you see this zealous man go and share the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, we won't look at all of Acts, but Acts 13 and 14 is his first missionary journey where he and Barnabas are sent off to go to the region of Galatia and they start planting churches. They're worshiping the Lord, they're fasting. Verse two of Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid on their hands and they sent them off. So Paul goes Um, We won't have time to look at the whole thing, but essentially he shows up. This was Paul's method of church planning. If you wanna know Paul's method of church planning, it is, by God's grace, I'm very thankful, it is different than our method of church planning today. Paul would go to the synagogue where the Jewish people would gather every Sabbath. They would go to the synagogue, they would read the Old Testament, and Paul would sit in. He grew up Jewish, he knew the law. And at this particular day, in Galatia, in, in the region, They look at him as they read through the scrolls of the Old Testament. They say, hey, do you have anything to say that would be beneficial to the group? And Paul says, yes, I do. And Paul stands up and gives them the gospel that this Messiah, that the Old Testament law was pointing to has come and he was crucified and God raised him from the dead and his name is Jesus and you can have life in his name if you repent and turn from your sins. And this caused the Pharisees and the Judaizers to get really mad at Paul all the time. And this was Paul's method. He would go to a town, he would go to the synagogue, he would show how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Christ and you can have faith in him and life in his name if you believe in what he's done and repent of your sin. And they would beat him, stone him, lock him up, you name it. When he's planning the Philippian church, he gets locked up. In Acts 13 and 14, he gets stoned to where they think he's dead. And he gets right back up and he goes right back into the town. 
This was his method. Show up to the Jews, make a lot of them really mad because they were offended by the gospel, get beat up, wake up, look around, and there were people who were going, can you tell us more next week? And he would say, I sure can. And this is what happens in Acts 13 and 14. They say, we've never heard stuff like this. And they even call it the grace of God. Can you show up? Can you come back and tell us the grace of God again next week? And Paul says, I sure can. And believers show up, they gather, and this causes the Judaizers to get mad. And from the very moment Paul starts preaching the gospel, he gets resistance over and over and over again. People come in and try to stop him, try to stone him, try to beat him. People come in and try to twist his words and twist the message. And in Acts chapter 13 and 14, Paul plants this church, and at the end of Acts chapter 14, he's back in Antioch, and he's with all of his buddies, and they're rejoicing at all that God had done through the gospel being preached. Paul's like, I was persecuted, I endured it, God gave me boldness, we preached the gospel, many came to know the Lord, and they're rejoicing with the brothers back in Antioch. It says this at the end of Acts chapter 14, uh, in verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, he made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That was his method of church planning. They get back at the end of chapter 14, verse 27 of chapter 14, they had arrived and gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door for faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. So this is what's going on. He goes on this journey, he plants this church, and in Acts chapter 15, we're not gonna look at it today, it'll probably come up in another sermon, is the Jerusalem Council, where the very issue that Paul's writing in Galatians shows up around the church at large. Hey, people are preying on believers and telling Gentile believers that they have to be circumcised. So what happens in Acts 15? They get the big dogs of the church, they get the apostles to show up. Peter, James, Paul, everybody gathers in Jerusalem and say, hey, we gotta figure this out. We gotta discuss this. And what they walk away with is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter, known for his mouth, stands up and says, guys, we cannot obey the law. Why would we put that burden on them when we as Jews could not obey it ourselves? No, they are saved by grace just as we are. We are not going to put the Old Testament burden of the law on them. He says, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna write to the Gentiles and ask them to be considerate of us Jews who have grown up with all of these customs and all of this Old Testament dietary laws, ceremonial laws, all of those things. We're gonna ask them to be considerate of some of those things, but we want them to know that they are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now, the letter of Galatians happens between Acts 14 and Acts chapter 15. That's when the letter was written because it's dealing with the same issue and Paul says, you've so quickly turned from the gospel. Paul had probably just gotten back to Antioch in Jerusalem and he finds out that the Judaizers had showed up and they had prayed on the Galatian church, churches and said, hey, hold on a second. I know Paul's pretty zealous and excited, but it's not just faith in Jesus alone. You gotta get circumcised. 
You got to follow the dietary laws. You got to follow the feast days. You got to do all of these things. And they add works to the gospel. And Paul writes them this letter. And the reason we think it's right before Acts 15, because if, if this was after Acts 15, it's pretty obvious that Paul would have probably referenced the council. Say, hey, I just met with Peter and James and all of these guys, and this is what we said. So it was probably on the eve of this council meeting. In fact, probably, Paul probably took a lot of what he was learning from the churches of Galatia to this council meeting and said, hey, this is why we gotta deal with this. This is why we gotta bring it up. If you change the gospel, you don't have the gospel anymore. You have no gospel at all. So he brings it up. So let's look at these first couple verses because this is not just a greeting. We're gonna fly through these five verses, but I want you to see, Paul is giving them the gospel that he's going to refer back to for the rest of the letter. He's given them the gospel and it says this, Paul, an apostle. So he tells them, hey, I'm an apostle. Not just a general messenger, that word apostolos in the Greek means messenger, but Paul says, no, I'm not just one of those messengers. I'm an apostle who is specifically chosen by Jesus. He says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. I didn't get a a phone call or a text message from Peter saying, hey, you wanna be an apostle? That's not how apostleship worked. It's not how it worked. The apostles in the New Testament, the, the office of apostle in the church were those that were specifically chosen, handpicked by the risen Jesus Christ. Those are the New Testament apostles. Those who are specifically commissioned by the risen Jesus. That's the 11 after Judas ends up betraying Jesus and killing himself. It's the 11 disciples in Acts 1 who are commissioned. I go back and forth on Matthias. He's replaced. He replaces Judas, but it's after Jesus had ascended. So I I get confused on him. But we know we at least have the 11. And then there's another one in Acts chapter 9 who the risen Jesus shows up to and handpicks and chooses and says, you're my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the earth, to the world, to the Gentiles. And it's Paul. He says, I'm not calling myself an apostle. I'm not, you know, gathering some buddies to say I'm an apostle. I was handpicked by the risen Jesus, sent to give this message to you. This message doesn't come from me, it comes from God. And God has given me authority to give it to you. There are no living apostles today, despite what you might see in church media and popular church Instagrams. God picked his few to have the authority to write down the message of the gospel and write down these words. And the canon closed, the Bible closed when the last apostle John died. There is no writing in scripture where the apostles designate or or appoint a successor to their apostleship. They were handpicked by the risen Jesus to carry the word of God to the people and to write down these words and the canon closed when the apostle John died. The apostles laid the foundation of the church, but there are no more apostles today, despite what people might call themselves to try to get more of your attention and money and authority and obedience. There are no living apostles anymore. And Paul is writing this and he says, I'm not an apostle by man or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The very God who raised Jesus has given me authority to send you this message. And all the brothers who are with me, notice he doesn't name any. I think that's strategic. He's saying, I'm not trying to name names here. The only name I'm naming is Christ. 
I don't want you to think that I'm trying to get other human beings to, to validate my authority. They agree with me. All these believers here know that I'm sent from God, but I'm not naming any of them like he does in all his other letters. He's usually like Paul's with, or Barnabas is with me, Sylvanus is with me. These guys, no, these brothers are behind me and they believe me. He says this, to the churches of Galatia, remember, a group of believers, group of churches in this region. And then he says this, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you wanna know the gospel in two words, it's grace and peace. That's the good news of the gospel. You and I, because of the free gift of God, because of his gracious gift, we can have peace with God. That's the good news of the gospel. Because God is gracious, you and I, who don't deserve it. Grace is a gift that you don't deserve. We don't deserve it, we haven't earned it. In God's grace, we have been made at peace with God. And when I'm at peace with God, I can be at peace in myself. And when I'm at peace with God and have peace in here, I can be at peace with you. And Paul says, grace and peace, the free gift of God's grace has given you peace with God from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How did we get this peace? What was this free gift of God's grace? The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. This is why you and I get this grace. Because God gave his son. Which one was it? Did God give Jesus or did Jesus give himself? The answer is yes. God so loved the world that he gave his son in Galatians chapter one, verse four, Jesus gave himself. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. He even says it, it was according to the will, this same verse, according to the will of God our Father, that it was the will of God, the will of Jesus, the will of the Trinity, they all work in perfect harmony with one another, that God would give his son and Jesus would give himself as a ransom for many would shed his blood so that you and I could have peace with God, that our sins could be atoned for. And because of that, all of the glory, all of the power, all of the dominion, all of the praise belongs to him. Verse five, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Church, this is not just a greeting, this is the gospel. Paul says, hey, the will of God was to take your sin and my sin and to give himself up for it, to die for it. And this was according to the plan of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Eternity passed, this was the plan of redemption to save humanity, that God would give himself. Notice what's not mentioned in these first five verses. You or I or any works required. If you wanna know the gospel, it's Galatians 1, one through five, that you and I, have peace with God because of the free gift of his grace and giving up his own son to die for our sins. He did the work, he accomplished the righteousness, he died the death, he shed the blood, and he rose from the dead, and he gets the glory. That's the gospel we believe. You don't work for that, you don't earn that, you receive it as a free gift of God's grace by trusting in it and believing in it. We call that faith, amen? This will be the gospel that Paul references back to over and over again. And when you turn from it, Paul does not get happy about that. And we'll see what he has to say about that next week. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for the explicit gospel that we can be made right with you. 
God, and it's not because of anything that we've done. Father, if there's anyone in here this morning that is still trying to be good enough to earn your behavior, to earn your love, God, I pray that they would hear the gospel this morning. God, that they would recognize first the magnitude of their sin, that there is no amount of good works that any of us could ever do to be worthy of your love. God, they would recognize the magnitude of your holiness. Father, that everything I do is tainted with sin. God, even my, quote, good works on my best day still have some desire in them to get glory, to get attention, have some sort of pride in them to feel confident and good about what I just did. God, that not for a second am I able to love you with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength, with all of it. God, I am so wicked and so sinful. And God, I'm grateful for the gospel that your will, your desire, your good pleasure, your plan to make peace with sinners was to offer yourself to live the life that we could never live, to obey your law. Father, and then to go to the cross, the innocent dying for the guilty so that the guilty could be called innocent. God, thank you. Father, that is a message that sets us free. And God, I pray for anyone in here, maybe today's the day that they believe on that message. They believe in Jesus Christ living for them and dying for them and raising for them. God, they're set free from this burden to try to be good enough to win your approval. God, I pray throughout this series that you would continually set people free by the preaching and proclaiming of your gospel. God, our only response is to give you, as Paul says, all the glory forever and ever. In the Greek, for ages and ages, eternal. All glory will forever go to you. So God, as we long for that day when we will forever give you the glory, God, we give it to you now. As believers who have received this grace, this free gift of Jesus giving himself up, God, our only response as a group of believers gathered together is to give you the praise for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray.